Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to tonight's lecture. Um, this is an LSE Arts public lecture, which um, hopefully doesn't need explanation to you, but um, we are the London School of Economics, and I'm a pro-director. My name's Paul Kelly, but the London School of Economics doesn't just do economics and political science. We have um, provided a venue for all manner of um, art events um, and continue to do so over the year. Um, as part of that, we do have this um, public lecture, um, the LSE Arts Public Lecture, and I'm delighted that tonight our lecturer is um, Ryan Pyle, who's going to speak to us um, about Tough Rides Brazil. Um, so Ryan was born in Toronto, in Canada, um, and spent his early years close to home, um, then obtained a degree in international politics, which is good because political scientist um, from the University of Toronto and it's fitting for the LSE that we have political scientists come to do interesting things but unlike um, those who go on to be academics in the field Ryan realized a lifelong dream travel to China on an exploratory mission in 2002 he moved to China permanently and in 2004 became a regular contributor to a number of um, publications including the New York Times 2009, Ryan was listed by PDN magazine as one of the 30 emerging photographers of the world. In 2010, Ryan began working full-time on television and documentary film production and has produced and presented several large multi-episode television series for major broadcasters in the USA, in Canada, the United Kingdom, Asia, China and in continental Europe. Um, tonight's talk will be um, based on one of um, Ryan's adventures, and he is going to talk about um, his tough ride in Brazil. Um, I'm going to leave the stage. He is going to um, range widely. Uh, he'll speak for between 45 minutes and an hour, and then there will be question and answer, which he will moderate. I will be here to make sure that you don't create um, uh, a public um, nuisance. But otherwise, I will leave the stage to Ryan and thank him for this evening. Thank you, sir. Cheers. So, uh, can everyone hear me okay? Thank you so much for coming out tonight. I really appreciate it. And I just want to thank the LSE for continuing to invite me back as a political scientist who just continues to ride motorcycles around countries and talk about them. So uh, it's wonderful to be here. So uh, as, uh, as mentioned in the introduction, I'm going to talk tonight about Brazil. And last year, I had the wonderful privilege of making a television show in Brazil. And that television show allowed me to ride a motorcycle uh, for about 60 days around the entire country. And I got to see really everything, including the mud of the Amazon, uh, which I'll explain a little bit later. But my journey and my lecture tonight will kind of follow my, my trip around the country. I've got video, I've got pictures, I've got maps, uh, and then at the end we can have a Q&A, because hopefully the presentation will, uh, will lead to some questions. So, make life a ride, that's kind of a motto that I like to follow, and my television show is called Tough Rides. And the goal is, is that I travel around one country at a time and try to understand it as best as possible using a motorcycle. Why a motorcycle and not a car? Okay. Motorcycle is open. 
A motorcycle gives you access. A motorcycle gives you a 360-degree experience of travel. You're not in a bubble. You do not have your air conditioning on. You are not listening to Taylor Swift. Right? You are in the moment. You feel the temperature change. You feel the weather change. You smell what people are cooking. You earn every kilometer. And that's why I choose to do it, because it's such a strong and powerful experience. So, as mentioned, I graduated from the University of Toronto. Uh, I moved to China. I wanted to be a photographer. I did that. It was great. Very funny. In 2009, I was named one of the most emerging photographers in the world right as I was exiting the industry. I exited the industry because the financial crisis collapsed all of my clients. The New York Times, Time Magazine, Newsweek, Fortune, Sunday Times Magazine, Spiegel, they all almost went bankrupt. And freelancers like myself got completely decimated. And I thought, how do I continue to tell stories? And I thought that traveling around countries by motorcycle would be one way that I could continue to explore the world and document it. And now I am a full-time producer and presenter, and I make one show for Discovery Channel called Extreme Treks, which is what I talked about when I was here last year. And then today I'll talk about Tough Rides, which is on Travel Channel. Uh, I also did Tough Rides China a few years ago and gave that talk here. Uh, and I also did Tough Rides India. And you'll notice I'm this ugly man in the gray. And that was my brother. And my brother did uh, China and India with me. And India was a bit tough, and uh, it forced Colin into retirement. Uh, the roads of India are not to be taken lightly. Um, so Colin retired, and now he owns us. Uh, he's working here in London, lives in London. But I wanted to do Brazil on my own. And I'm very uh, fortunate to have the backing of BMW, who helped me with my productions. And now I'm just going to show you a brief trailer of my journey uh, around Brazil. So uh, that's a brief trailer of my six-part television show about traveling around Brazil. And Brazil is amazing. And making television there is easy because it is so beautiful. And uh, as you can see from this map here, number one is Rio de Janeiro. And that is where I started and finished my journey on the very iconic Copacabana Beach, uh, where all great things happen. And then I moved my way north along the northeastern coast. And then from number eight, which is Natel, I began to head west. And that's where you get into the Amazon. That's where things get a little hairy. That's where people don't travel by road. You start to tell people that you're going to go west through northern Brazil, and they look at you like you're a little bit not right. Um, people travel by boat. Uh, people fly. They do not travel by road through the middle of the Amazon. But we did that. And you'll notice number 16 to 17, that's the BR319 highway probably the most dangerous and difficult highway in all of Brazil, which I'll talk about a little bit later. And then down around 18, 19, 20, you get to Iguazu, you're back in civilization, you get to number 23, 24, you're in Florinopolis, which is the party party town on the beach, everyone's beautiful and happy, and then eventually you're back in Rio de Janeiro for Caipirinhas on Copacabana Beach. So, Rio de Janeiro is the worst place in the world to start a motorcycle adventure because you don't want to leave. It is the worst. It is beautiful uh, when you're on the beach. The sun is out every day. Everyone looks great. There's drinks. It's a wonderful place. Uh, they're hosting the Olympics. I believe the opening ceremony is next week. should be interesting to see how it comes together. 
I don't know how it'll all work out logistically, uh, but this works. <clears throat> and it works very nicely. But Rio de Janeiro is a city of contrasts. They have the favelas, they have the slums, uh, there's a lot of inequality. It's a very complex city that definitely cannot be fully explained in my talk or my television show. But we did make an effort to kind of understand and explore the favelas. We went on a tour uh, with a guy who knows, knows how to get around in the favelas and he introduced us to some of his friends. So we had a feel for what it was like to live uh, in this part of Rio. And of course, the iconic uh, Christ statue looking out over Rio de Janeiro. And there's a camera in the shot just to remind us that we are making a television show. We go out every time to actually make a real television show. We are not motorcycle riders who go out with GoPros and accidentally make a television show. We go out with real cameras. We use a drone. That's the back of my cameraman. He likes to climb on things. His name's Chad Ingram. And that's our SUV as well. So we travel with a support vehicle with the camera guys and I'm on the motorcycle uh, up ahead. And this is Chad's view from the car most of the time and he's just waiting for one of those bulls to knock me off my bike so he has something to film. That's basically what happens. They're just waiting for me to get into trouble. And there was plenty of trouble uh, in Brazil. And of course, this is one of our aerial shots that we use from our drone. Uh, in Brazil, we had a drone uh, helicopter camera which can follow you high above. And this is beautiful because one of the things I didn't know about Brazil is that it is as flat as a pancake. It has coastal mountains along the eastern coast, but everything north and west of that is flat. So you can be 3,000 kilometers away from the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of the Amazon and you are going to be five meters above sea level. Um, so being able to see from above is a great way to get perspective on the country. And that's, uh, that's Chad in the front seat operating our drone and that's Max, um, our second cameraman and, and Portuguese speaker uh, in the backseat also using the drone. So it gives you a little bit of a behind the scenes look at what the camera team is like. So that's a picture of me. This is day one. Please take notice of how clean I am. In that helmet, I am smiling because these trips are tough. Right? It takes about six months to organize them. All kinds of permits and visas and dealing with broadcasters and dealing with corporate partners and trying to figure out how angry my wife will be at which stage in this 60-day 60 journey around Brazil. Really planning all this, but day one is beautiful because all of that is now behind me and I'm on the road, which is where I love to be. Um, and it's good to be clean. <laughs> this is day two. So the worst thing that can happen to you on a motorcycle adventure is your SUV breaks down. This isn't supposed to happen. This is the support vehicle. The SUV broke down seven times in a 60-day trip. And we filmed a lot of it because it led to some very interesting and unique moments. But this was a scene that was all too common for us. This is supposed to be where the motorcycle goes if I have a problem, but it's not where the support vehicle is supposed to go. So just a reminder that anything can go wrong at any time when you're out in the wild. Uh, another shot of me looking fairly clean and happy on the roads north of Rio de Janeiro. As we moved north, we got into Minas Gerais province, which in Portuguese basically means the general mine. This is where a lot of the iron ore that ends up in China comes from. I live in Shanghai, China. And uh, it's amazing that you can stop on the side of the highway, uh, take a drink of water, turn around, and see a massive iron ore mine just working away. 
and these massive trucks coming by, and this is a common scene uh, throughout the province. It's pretty amazing what happens, obviously. Uh, dramatic landscape changes. And then as we got north, the real landscape really started to change. We started getting through some small mountains, but it was beautiful. Trucks are always a problem. For some reason, I like traveling around developing countries. Developing countries have a lot of truck traffic, a lot of truck drivers. They don't like motorcycle riders. Sometimes they like to play games. Sometimes they like to try to run you over. But here I was behind him, uh, and I was definitely in the advantage position, because if I was in front of him, he would just be barreling down behind me. As we moved our way up the northeastern coast, we eventually arrived in Salvador. And Salvador is incredibly beautiful, incredibly special. It was basically the first capital of South America, the first, first Portuguese city in Brazil, and, uh, and heavily Catholic at that. And that was where, that was actually the capital of Brazil for a long time. And it was where most of the wealth was uh, in South America for a really long time. It's where all the gold was coming out. And we had a chance to visit the city and visit um, a church that had entire gold leaf painted on the inside of the church. Taking, taking us back to the days when the Catholic Church was just unbelievably wealthy, um, especially in this part of the world. Pretty spectacular. Diversity. I had no idea Brazil was so diverse. You know, as you travel around Brazil, you'll meet Brazilians who call themselves Brazilians, but they're of Portuguese descent, German descent, Italian descent, African descent. And these are... Um, these are descendants from the slave era. And at, at its height, actually, Brazil had basically uh, brought in up to four times more slaves than the United States did during the same period. And they basically worked in the mining uh, and commodities farming industry. Uh, Sugarcane was big during that time as well. And now the descendants of those slaves still live in the city and give uh, north, northeastern Brazil a really strong African flavor, which is wonderful because the food, the culture, the religion... Uh, is all very much different from southern Brazil. And that was something I had no idea about. And here, uh, the guys are doing um, um, their... Uh, I'm drawing a blank, but I actually uh, did it. Uh, it's their... Capoeira, yes! I took a capoeira lesson, um, and I was horrible. But it, uh, it ended up being pretty funny on camera. But there are these guys that are in, unbelievably athletic uh, doing the doing the capoeira, and it was beautiful to watch and see. Um, coming from the northern hemisphere, like I do, I'm from Canada, it was very strange to be traveling north and have it getting hotter. You start, you start off in Rio de Janeiro, you go straight north, you're getting closer to the equator. Sometimes you might expect it to go colder. I don't know if you travel from London to Edinburgh, uh, it's going to be colder. But uh, as you go north, it gets hotter, you have to start worrying about hydration, you have to start worrying about taking care of yourself because it becomes incredibly hot. Some days up to 40 degrees Celsius uh, on the bike and not a lot of shade. Sometimes you see some donkeys next to the beach. This is just next to Natel and Natel is stunning. You know, people talk about the beaches of Rio de Janeiro. People talk about uh, the southern coast of Florinopolis, but actually the region around Natel, which is in the northeastern part, has untouched beaches with almost no tourism. A few donkeys and some fishermen, uh, but not a lot of tourism. And they were uh, definitely one of the highlights. And they have an established trail where you can travel for days along the beach, along that northern coastline, 
and you stay in little guest houses along the way, and we actually did that as part of our adventure and part of our show. And it was, uh, it was absolutely stunning. So that's a shot of me on the beach about to enjoy some beach riding. And these are some of the little canals that come out and connect uh, that you have to get the car over and the motorcycle over because they're incredibly deep. But palm trees everywhere, stunning, stunning views. And great people. And nothing quenches thirst quite like coconut water. Uh, a bottle of water doesn't quite do it. And there's men like this everywhere around uh, ready to crack open a coconut and get you back hydrated. And just a really chill part of Brazil, something I wasn't, again, expecting at all. So what was the plan for Brazil? We wanted to do a total circumnavigation of Brazil counterclockwise in 60 days. What could happen? Well, when you put yourself in the middle, out in the middle of nowhere, everything happens. We had extreme heat in Salvador and Natal, which is up on the northeast. And then we headed west into the Amazon basin, where we had a different kind of extreme heat that was dry. Uh, and then we got into the Amazon uh, jungle, which was very wet and humid and muddy, and the bugs. No one really prepares you for the bugs of the Amazon. Let me just take a moment to think about this. You're riding your motorcycle, you're surrounded by jungle. You stop, you turn off your engine, you get off the bike, you want to have a drink of water. You can pretty much start a timer on your watch of three minutes. You have three minutes between when you stop to when everything within five kilometers can smell you and then wants to eat you. And they have black flies, mosquitoes, ants, everything. You are a food source at that stage. And then within about three or four minutes, you're slapping, you're pushing things off you. Ants are starting to move up your boots, um, and they bite. Uh, so the Amazon can be incredibly hospitable. Actually, I've done trekking shows in Tibet. I've been at 6,000 meters on the top of Kilimanjaro. Uh, I've been to a lot of extreme places around the world, and I would say at this stage in my career in life that the Amazon is the most uncomfortable place and I'm not talking about like in a city in the Amazon. I'm talking like in the deep Amazon. It's easily one of the most uncomfortable places I've ever been. Uh, and then we came back to civilization at the Iguazu Falls, which was lovely. And then the crowded cities of southern Brazil, Sao Paulo. We went back through Sao Paulo, which was lovely. So that was my journey. And uh, just for a bit of reference, I've done previous journeys in China uh, and India. I love brick countries. The fast developing aspects of these countries give you so much context for your journey. It makes it so much more than just a joyride, so much more than just a motorcycle adventure. You really get to learn about people. You get to learn about a country that's changing and developing rapidly. Sometimes for, the, for good, sometimes not for good. So the Brazilian currency actually dropped 30% while I was filming in Brazil against the U.S. dollar. So there's an idea of how you know, people were really worried about the economy while I was making this journey, and everyone was constantly talking about this as we, as we met people along the way. And actually, we left Rio de Janeiro in the rain, and we finished last year, May, uh, May 23rd. So back to the story. This is a very rare picture. As I mentioned earlier, Brazil is flat as a pancake. And as we got into the Amazon basin, we came across this mountain where we got to ride up it and then over a little plateau and then back into the pancake uh, basin. But it gave us a very rare glimpse at just how beautiful uh, and how big and how flat everything was around us as we started to move west. 
One of the best ways to see things and see things from above is to climb massive trees, and we tried to do this anytime we could. Gives you a great understanding of the surrounding landscape, the surrounding flora and fauna, uh, which is incredible. The, the Amazon is so dense and so thick that the only way to really understand it is from above. There's a picture of me looking a little less happy. Climbing a tree is great because you get to be up and there's a breeze and you can see things. But as part of our trip, we actually spent a night in the Amazon, sleeping in a hammock with nothing but some ferns to cover us from the rain. Uh, and of course, there were lots of bugs and creepy crawlies and snakes uh, and things you know, climbing on you in the middle of the night. So that was me preparing uh, our shelter for the evening. And you can just see how dense and thick everything is in the Amazon. You really just cannot see from here to the back of the room. And it's very claustrophobic. But you do get to meet really cool people. So one day, we were traveling through the Amazon, and we were having a really rough day. I was getting caught in the mud. I was very tired. I was dehydrated. And I said, guys, I'm just not going to get to the town we had to get to. And we were about 100 kilometers away, which was going to take another three hours, maybe. And I said, look, let's just find the next village and pull over. And we did that. And we met this man, Bata. And Bata definitely holds the Guinness World Record, unofficially, of being the most fertile man in the Amazon. Because <laughs> he had 14 children, 30, 37 grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. And the night we showed up happened to be his birthday. And they all came to his house, or his little village area. Uh, and we partied with him. And he can make a mean caipirinha. And um, we had fish, we had a chance to meet him and his whole family, which was like a, about the size of this room, actually, with all of you here. This, was, this could be Bata's family. And, uh, and just an amazing man, 54 years old, with, uh, with a lot of kids and a lot of uh, happiness around him. So it was great to be able to, to hang out with him. And the, his necklace is quite interesting. It's a crocodile tooth, and he actually wrestled down the crocodile with his bare hands. He has a picture of it. Uh, which he'll show you if you have the chance to visit. So just, uh, just an ultimate human being uh, and very hospitable and put us up for the night. And in, in his house, we slept on our hammocks. In Brazil, there's no beds, not in the Amazon. Everyone just sleeps on a hammock and you have to buy your own hammock and bring it with you. And that's what we did along the way. So he, we just, he, there's hooks everywhere. So we just hooked ourselves up uh, and spent the night at his place, a little, a little drunk uh, from the birthday party. Um, you wouldn't expect you'd want to eat corn in 35 degrees Celsius heat in the middle of the Amazon, but that's apparently all they have uh, as you're rolling through truck stops. There's a guy barbecuing. It's like 35 degrees Celsius, and he's just sweating over a barbecue, um, making barbecued corn. But that was all we had to eat most days. That was all the food that was available. And that's what this, some of these truck stops would look like, uh, thatched roofs. And this is the famous red... Amazonian mud. And I got to learn a lot about mud as you make your way through the Amazon. Amazonian mud is quite unique because it's red, it sticks to everything. It is the stickiest mud I've ever come across in the world. You could, when it gets stuck to your motorcycle tire, normally, you know, as you ride, it falls off, but it doesn't. It just wedges itself to every aspect of your clothing and your bike and makes traveling incredibly difficult. And I'll get into the mud a little bit later. As you can see, we were just entering the Amazon here. The bike is still quite clean. 
There's another example of what it looked like as we started to move our way through. Isolating. Lonely. You know, these are some of the verbs and you know, vocabulary that comes to mind when you're traveling through these remote places. A dead straight road, slight rises every now and then, and just literally weeks like this as we made our way west. And yes, this does happen quite often, actually. So back to my mud. There's really two kinds of mud in Brazil. One is the knee-deep mud, which is actually great because all you do is line yourself up in another tire track and it's knee-deep and you go. But you go straight. But you, you know, you slide around, but it's pretty straight. Then the second kind of mud is about an inch thick and it sits on hard clay. And when you are riding on an inch thick of mud on hard clay and your front tire just starts going everywhere and uh, it's like riding on ice and it's impossible. And when it's raining three, four, five, six times a day, uh, this happens a lot. My worst day in the Amazon, I fell about 18 times. That's soul-destroying. Uh, the good news is you're going slow. You know, 10, 15, 20 kilometers an hour, you can fall, you can bounce back up. And when you, when you hit the ground, you actually slide. It's literally like slipping and sliding on ice. Uh, incredibly challenging. Again, something I had no idea, had never been able to prepare for. Kind of tired, though. Kind of tired. And then 10 minutes later, that's the same day, the s- stops raining, the sun comes out, and then everything's dry. And that's when you really got to move to try to make sure you can cover the distance you need to cover each day so that you can get someplace safe uh, to sleep because you don't want to be sleeping out in the Amazon. Now, the really strange thing is every now and then you'd come across these massive trucks. And these massive trucks are also trying to make their way through the Amazon on the same roads that you are. And this truck, you can see, is started off on the road, and then it went up maybe a 10-degree incline of a hill. And then the whole back of the truck slid right off the road. And of course, I'm on a motorcycle, so I can kind of sneak on by. It's not the end of the world. But the other trucks down the, down the road, they have to wait for that truck to clear. Because if they try to go past it and their back tires go, then they slide into the other truck and then, it, then they block the whole road in both directions. So when a truck goes down like this, those people maybe have to wait days. It either has to stop raining long enough for the road to dry so that it can be towed out or pulled out, or they can just pack in enough dirt to get it out, um, or they need a huge tow truck to come in and pull that out, and that's just not happening because we're days away from a proper city. So these truck drivers that do some of these routes uh, are pretty brave, and it's an incredibly tough journey. And again, you can see the red mud, which just is ingrained in my brain. I still have dreams about it. But again, we started moving further and further west, further deeper into the cities, and uh, and even bridges uh, covered in red mud, and the rain nearby. So where are we now? So we're working our way through the Amazon Basin, which was basically 8 to 13 or 14. That's south of the Amazon River. It's wet, but not that wet. It's tough, but not that tough. Uh, There were other trucks on that journey. There were cities along that journey. Most people fly to them, though. There were proper hotels along those journeys that had Internet access 
and electricity so we could charge our, our cameras and download all of our footage every night and talk to my wife and kids and things like that. Where things started to get a little bit hairy uh, was out around 15 and 16. So, Manaus. Manaus is 15. 16. Manaus is 16. So Manaus is a town of about 2 million people, and it's deep in the Amazon. People get there by two ways. One is they fly there, or they take a riverboat up the Amazon, big boats. And it's actually a manufacturing hub for all of Brazil, because it's basically a port city, even though it's thousands of kilometers away from the Atlantic. And I stayed there for a few days just to relax. They had a holiday inn. It was well-stocked with whiskey. I took a couple days to recoup and, and, and rejuvenate myself, and I was able to join the Manaus Samba Band uh, for a day. And they just travel around Manaus and perform. And I realized I have no rhythm at all as a, as a Caucasian Canadian. Uh, but they still let me play the tambourine, and I tried my best. This picture is quite funny because it's truly the last moment I was happy for a long time, for a really long time, you know. We were, there was a little bar behind, and I would go and have a caipirinha, and then I would come back and play, thinking that alcohol might loosen me up a little, and I might get some rhythm. It didn't work, but I was happy. We had a day off. Things were good. Someone gave me a little green hat. Then we crossed south over the Amazon, and we began what is the BR319 highway. And if you go up to a Brazilian person, and you say, do you know about the BR319 highway? If they do, they'll just shiver. Because it travels from Manaus to Porto Velo, right through the heart of the Amazon. The road was built in the 1970s by the military, and they did a horrible job. At one time it was paved, but now the jungle has reclaimed it. No one travels on this road. A thousand kilometers. No towns. No villages. No natives. No mobile phone access. No gas stations, nothing. If something happens to you out there, there's no one coming to save you. Uh, it's quite funny. My mom still thinks like she watches too much TV. It's like, oh, they'll send a helicopter for you. It's like, no, no, they won't, because you can't land a helicopter in the middle of the Amazon. So this is me traveling across um, to the south bank of the Amazon River. And I'm quite nervous, because I know what's ahead. And as we kind of made our way along the BR319, this was one of the last moments in civilization we had where there was a small barge to take us across a tributary. And already it's 38 degrees Celsius uh, in the sun, basically on the equator, as we enter into the Amazon. And you can just see there's no shade. I'm trying to huddle up next to my motorcycle just so I can get in the shade. And the guys in the car, you know, they got the air conditioning on. And they're just hanging out, and they had some music, and that was really frustrating. Uh, but they still got a good shot of me suffering. Ah, right after that barge, we went through a small uh, little kind of, what is a small ranch, um, where we saw some bulls and some cows. And that was, that was pretty much the last bit of civilization we saw in the BR319. Ah, the bridges. The bridges, the bridges, the bridges. Along the BR319, along the 1,000-kilometer stretch, there are 133 bridges. Exactly. Because my heart stopped on each one. 
This was the first one, and it was the best-looking bridge of the bunch. And it's quite easy. They've got tire tracks. You put your bike on a track, you go straight. If you fall off, you deserve to be in the water. It's not that hard. It's plenty wide. Uh, when it rains, it gets slippery. It's a little more challenging, but still, that was by far the best bridge of the bunch. Right after that bridge, we came across two local Brazilians. Now, by this stage, we were maybe 30 kilometers into the BR319, so we still had 970 kilometers ahead of us. We met these guys who had just done 970, and they had 30 left. And they were like, hey, we made it. Let's fix up the car, let's change the brake pads. The worst is behind us. And I said, the worst? What's out there? What is the next 970 kilometers holding for us? And these men took one look at our SUV, one look at my motorcycle, and just laughed. <laughs> and they said, no effing way are you going to be able to do this journey. And this is me thinking, with the BR, that's the BR319, you can see this little bit is paved, but only for a couple hundred meters, and then it just goes to dirt again. And you can see their car and endless road. And there's 970 kilometers past their car. And they're basically telling me, as local Brazilians, and they're hardcore, they're topless, right? They've just come out of the jungle, right? They know how to fix their car, we don't. They know how to fix a motorcycle, I don't, right? They're telling me it's not going to happen. On camera, they're telling me it's not going to happen. And... Uh, and they're like, two things. They said, number one, do you have a shotgun? And I said, no, I'm not from Texas. Uh, I'm Canadian, not American. Tried to explain the difference. I was like, do you know Donald Trump? Uh, they didn't, so it was good, I guess, because he hasn't continued, you know, dominated the airwaves there yet. But, um, but they said, do you have a shotgun? I said, no. Why would I need a shotgun? I'm just going through the Amazon, quite naive. Uh, they said, big cats. Don't go into the Amazon without a shotgun. So that scared me. And then he brought me around the back of his truck and he showed me a shotgun and shells. And, and I was thinking, I've never fired a gun. I'm, you know, I, you know that's, not, that's not really me. And that was kind of scary. And again, I'm sitting here thinking, am I going to go that way or not? And then the second thing was, they looked at my motorcycle. And I had a big F800 GS BMW motorcycle. And they looked at it and they said, that bike looks heavy. And they said, in some places, the mud's up to here. And they, they just said, you're not going to make it. That motorcycle is going to have to go on top of the car in order to get through this road. And I was like, no way. Come on, I've done China. I rode my motorcycle to Mount Everest Base Camp. I've, I've been all through India. Like, I'm not going to have to put a motorcycle on top of a car to get down this road. That's kind of soul-destroying if you take yourself, you know, as a serious motorcycle rider. Putting it on a car is beyond admitting failure. And, and there's like, yeah, you're going to have to put that on. The road's completely impossible for a motorcycle of that weight. And then I huddled up with my team, and I was like, look, guys, these really Brazilian guys that look way tougher than us uh, are telling us basically not to do this road. How do we all feel about it? And the guys are like, yeah, maybe we should buy their shotgun. I'm like, no, we're not buying a, we're not buying a shotgun from anyone. Um, we're not taking a shotgun with us. I'm sure we can, we can survive without a shotgun. Um, and, and the guy said, look, like, you know, 
we'll be safe, we'll go slow, we'll see what happens. Uh, but let's give it a try. We came all this way around Brazil. By the way, this is already like one month in. So we're already kind of tired. We've been filming every day for a month. We're one month in, and then we get to this road, which is going to make or break our journey. So we decide to go. Right after we, we left those guys and said goodbye, and they laughed at us, uh, we came across this small bridge, and this was a bridge that was in construction. We're lucky they were fixing it. Um, they were fixing it, and we actually went across the bridge with it in this state, which was a bit uh, hair-raising. But these people were the last people we saw for about 960 kilometers. That's me after just coming across another bridge, wondering if I'm leading my production team uh, to their death. A little bit heavy, a little bit nervous, but deep in the Amazon. That's what most of the bridges looked like. So you can see the whole area where it connects to the land, it's eaten away. And one of the crazy things about rain and humidity and the Amazon in general is it just destroys infrastructure. It just deteriorates wood. Seven days, seven, you know, seven rains a day, uh, 35 degree heat, nothing survives that's built by man. And these, every time the big SUV, a thousand kilometers, we had to carry our own water, we had to carry our own petrol, we had to carry our own canned tuna, peanut butter, and bread, and we had a big bottle of cachaça, because, you know, the nights get lonely, and some lime, so at least we could have proper caipirinhas on the road. But really, the SUV was so overloaded and so heavy, and every time it went across these bridges, it just dipped. And my heart just stopped every time. And there's a shot of me looking quite nervous again, wondering if uh, this was a good idea. And this is, a, this is probably my favorite shot that really shows what it's like. So you can see the potholes. Okay. It rains every day, mud, muddy potholes. You cannot tell how deep the pothole is until you are in it. So you think in a car that's not maybe a big deal, you know, but in a motorcycle it's a huge deal. Is it ankle deep or waist deep? And you don't know until the front wheel goes in. And when it's ankle deep, the guys all go, oh, it's ankle deep. And when it's waist deep, I go in, the front wheel goes in, I fly off my motorcycle, the guys are like, yes, we caught it. <laughs> right? That's basically what it was like. And one of the things I didn't really understand is, is that these potholes cover the entire thousand kilometers of road. So every five meters, every ten meters for a thousand kilometers, you're, dip, you're dipping the front wheel in, waiting to see if it goes down, and then hitting the acceleration to try to come out the other side. And you're doing that day in and day out. A thousand kilometers, we did it in seven days. Our worst day was the middle day. We rode for 14 hours. We did 40 kilometers. And it was because of days like this. And it's so claustrophobic. You know? It's like being in the Amazon on a road like this, if you can call it a road, it's more of just a bicycle trail, is so claustrophobic. You know, you're, if you can see where I am, I look left, I can see maybe five meters before it's just black of dense Amazon rainforest. I look to the right, maybe I've got 10 meters 
of Amazon rainforest. And in there are things I don't want to know about. And there you are just rolling along for seven days in a virtual green tunnel. And some of the local people we met, they said, whatever happens, do not go into the bush. If you break down, you stay on the road. If you have to sleep, you stay on the road. Apparently, all the really nasty things will not come out into the open on a road like that and attack. So if you go into the bush, you go into their home, they're defensive, they attack you, they bite you, whatever. But if you stay on the road, that's kind of a safety zone. And the biggest issue was the snakes. And oh my God, did we see snakes, like really long, colorful, probably dangerous snakes just cruising across the road super fast as we were coming through. Uh, very uncomfortable. I'm glad my mom's not here, because she would have freaked out with the snake chat. Some places it was a little wider, but you can see just equally destructive road. Uh, very muddy, very wet, very challenging. There's a picture of me feeling super happy about the day, wondering when it all might be over. Uh, wow, the nights. The nights were spectacular. People ask me, what was your most favorite place you visited in all of Brazil? And I have to say that this road, as hard as it was during the day, after a few caipirinhas at night, sitting out with our fire, the stars were incredible. There is no light pollution anywhere in the deep Amazon. And you can just see everything. Um, and you'll notice there's a little structure here. So along this BR319, one of the reasons it was actually made was for telecommunications. And every 40 kilometers, they have a little shack like this with a huge mobile phone tower. And the mobile phone tower beams internet access across the Amazon, but it doesn't filter down to the road or to where we are. So we were without communication for seven days, but there's internet beaming through the jungle. And these little huts are all locked, and we couldn't go inside. But what we did was we hung our hammock on the wall and on our car. And then we put the big mosquito net over the top, uh, and then we slept. And that's how we made our way through the Amazon, through this stretch. So that's a typical night scene of what it was like sleeping out in the middle of the jungle. And this is us leaving one of those huts and one of those telephone towers one morning as we got out. We were on the road every day at 6.30 in the morning, and it was winter, so it was getting dark at about 5 or 5.30 uh, every night, and we definitely didn't want to be out riding in the dark because then you can't see the potholes, you can't see the potential wildlife. Uh, it's not a happy scene. The SUV got stuck just as many times as the motorcycle did. Big, heavily weighted down SUV getting stuck four or five times a day. Now, how did we get the car out of these situations? We had a winch, right? It's that chain thing that you put on the front of the car. You hook it around to something, and then you pull the car out. And you can see there's not a lot of trees and stuff next to the road, so we had to have a pin. And a pin was kind of a big nail, about three feet about a meter, and uh, what we would do is we would take it out and hammer it into the ground about 10 meters away from the car, and then we'd hook the winch up to the pin. The pin would be nice and deep, and then it would, it would anchor the car as we pulled it out. And every time the car got stuck, it was about an hour. About an hour to kind of hammer in the pin, make sure it was sturdy, hook in the winch, pull the, you know, we were pushing the back as we winched as well, uh, and then to take out the pin was not easy. And... Uh, and then usually we would just sit and relax and try to drink some water uh, without being attacked by bugs. 
And that was kind of happening on a regular basis as well. So we had no idea. We thought the car would we'd be able to go through quite a lot easier than it did, but it didn't. And you can just see the extent of the mud. It was unbelievable. Now this, this is a funny scene because my cameraman, Chad, is wearing the red shirt. And one of the things that doesn't come across in the picture is he's just laughing uncontrollably because he's standing out there, you know, 10, 20, 10 meters away from me. And he's laughing because he knows I have to pick one of those tire tracks to ride my motorcycle through. And he knows I'm probably going to fall before I can even get to him. And he's going to get a great shot. Uh, because, you know, you start off on this little platform, it's kind of dry. You go into one of those tracks, and it's ankle deep, ankle deep, ankle deep, and then it's waist deep. Uh, and then you obviously come off. And you can't ride on the little platforms in between the tire tracks because they're so slippery then the bike spins around and then it's one wheel in one track and one wheel in the other and then you're really kind of stuck and it's quite difficult. But this was one of the absolute worst stretches on our last day on the BR319 where we went, uh, I think this stretch it was like three or four hours to go five kilometers and that was just horrible. Uh, but as we kind of came off the BR319, it was great to see civilization. We were headed towards another town. And then we got to see other people getting stuck in the mud. And we were relieved that even the locals are getting stuck in the mud. And they don't know how to drive in this. And that we were close and that there were people who could help us. Uh, and we felt almost like we'd survived something ridiculous, which we clearly had. So by this stage, at the end of the BR319, we were in Portovello, number 17. And from there, it was really clear sailing. We had a chance to visit the Pantanal, probably one of the largest wetlands in the world. Birds, wildlife, everything you could name. We stayed there for four days, mainly just to recuperate our souls because we had lost something in the Amazon. And I, you know, I tell my kids, I try to say, you know, like it took five years off my life, that one bloody road, uh, but they don't understand. But the key is, is that we had a chance to enjoy the Pantanal, the wetlands, uh, the animal life, and we stayed there for a couple days. I got to play cowboy. Uh, I can't ride a horse. They try to kill me most of the time, but we were actually herding these big cows, which is not something you should do if you don't know how to ride a horse. But that was something we had a chance to do uh, while we were in the Pantanal. Take a canoe ride. Again, think of like a, you know, a substance abuse retreat. That's where I felt like I was at. Just a chance to relax. There was no adrenaline. <laughs> there was no danger. Uh, it was nice to enjoy some of the beauty. And then we came a little further down to the Iguazu Falls, which is one of the most beautiful waterfalls in the world. And this is where we really re-entered civilization. You know, we came out of the Amazon. I had a big beard. I was just filthy from head to toe. Uh, and then we're back on this road, and people are going 120 kilometers an hour instead of four. And that, you know, that messes with your mind. Like, oh my God, I'm back in civilization. And then you pull up to a nice hotel, which is right next to the waterfall, and you look like you just came out of the Amazon. And there's, you know, there's people from London having afternoon tea on the terrace and you pull up just head to toe in mud. And people are looking at you like, did you just come out of the Amazon? And you're like, yes, of course I did. Where did you go? We flew here. And I was like, that's smarter. <laughs> um, but this was a chance to like re-enter real life again. And it was a bit of a shock. But then I had some fun. We took one of those boats that go right underneath the waterfall and I cleaned myself up. No, I showered before that and after. Um, seven days without showering on the BR319 too. There's... Not nice uh, with the mud and stuff and the heat. But uh, Iguazu, I cleaned up a little bit and had a chance to start enjoying the trip again because the BR319 
while it was fun, while it was a challenge, while it broke me and then allowed me to rebuild a little stronger, uh, it was nice to be done and to be back on the tourist trail. And then I had a chance to do stand-up paddleboard yoga, which is easily the dumbest sport in the world. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know which one of my producers suggested this idea, but uh, they, they're like, Ryan, you're totally exhausted, you're broken emotionally and spiritually, you need to do yoga. And I'm like, yeah, I can see that. And they're like, they can do it with a paddleboard. And I was really tired or, or, or whatever, and I said, sure. Uh, but yoga is impossible on land, and then you get put on the water on a paddleboard, and they ask you to do something, and it's ridiculously hard, and you're shaking and falling, and I fell about 10 times in the water. Great instructor, she was effortless and did everything, but it's not something I'll do again, ever. But this was in Florinopolis, so again, back on the southern coast, back on the Atlantic Ocean, right? I come out of the Amazon, I was back on the Atlantic. I went sandboarding. Uh, with the sandboard champion of the world, DG, who's Brazilian. Uh, he taught me how to do some sandboarding, which was great. Uh, and then I went to Blumenau, which is a, a predominantly German uh, cultured town and people of Brazilian German heritage, and they take their beer drinking very seriously, unlike the European Germans. I'm just joking. Uh, everyone takes their beer seriously. But it was quite cool. They have a lot of microbreweries there. We visited a few of them, we had some drinks, uh, played around. Then I went rock climbing uh, in Sao Bento, just north of Sao Paulo. Beautiful way to kind of rejuvenate again and begin exploring other parts of Brazil. And that's my team. Max on the left, Chad in the middle, myself in the orange. And then I started and finished in the exact little black square uh, on Copacabana Beach. Uh, 61 days later, 14,500 kilometers on this journey around Brazil. And this was, you know, pretty clean at that stage, but uh, definitely a bit broken, a bit tired, but what an adventure. What an adventure. Now, I have one more video for you. One more video, and this video is compiled of footage from the BR319. Just in case you didn't really believe me or somehow feel I doctored the pictures, this is nasty. So that's a little bit about the BR319. Was it a success? Yes, because I'm alive, which is great for my family and stuff. I said that pretty casually, but I'm happy in general. Um, I think we were the first people to circumnavigate Brazil and make a television show about it. You guys have a famous soccer player who did something recently, but he was only there for like a day and a half or something. Didn't, didn't really get the full experience. Um, but it was an incredible cultural, educational, and travel adventure. And the show is actually out right now on Travel Channel, so go home and check your, uh, you know, your listings and you'll be able to see when it's out. I think it's on the weekend at the moment, Saturdays and Sundays. So you'll have a chance to catch up and, uh, and see some of the journey. And again, I make this Tough Ride show, Brazil's season three. China and India come before it, they're also on Travel Channel. Uh, and I make extreme checks with Discovery Channel where I climb mountains and stuff. If anyone was here last year, you, you saw that. Uh, and I give lectures all around the world, and, uh, and that's a bit of my experience. You can follow me on all these social media. I'm on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, and one of the great things about it is as I do these journeys, I bring my social media group with me, and I'm posting every day about where we are and all the silly things uh, that are going on, except for those dark moments through the heart of the Amazon. Um, but that's my presentation. Thank you so much. 
And I'd love to open up the floor to any questions or uh, comments or suggestions anyone might have about Tough Rides Brazil. Anything? Who's going to be first? Yes, ma'am. That's a very good question. How much time did I spend on the motorcycle versus doing activities and filming and stuff like that? So I always like to say that uh, you know, most days we're on the motorcycle, almost all day, and then usually we arrive somewhere and then we do some filming or have an activity. But the filming process can add anywhere between 30 and 50% to the travel time of going around a country. And you'll, you, you, know, you saw the drone shots of me going around corners. Yeah, I, I had to do that a few times. Like, the drone's just not following me for 60 days with endless battery, right? We have to say, oh, this is a great corner. We stop, we bring out the drone, we grab a camera, and then I do it once. And I say, guys, did we get it? And they say, no, and we have to do it again, and then maybe again. So we are, you know, filming. We are making a television show, and this is, this is the wear and tear. And uh, it can add 30 to 50% to a journey. And I would say... Yeah, some days we just ride, like all day, and don't film just to get distance covered. Uh, and then other days we split the riding and the filming. And then there's days where we don't ride at all, like in the Pantanal where we stayed for three, four days just to recover our souls, but we did some filming and ate some food and drank water and showered and got ourselves back. So there's days we try to mix in as well. Any other questions? Yes? Oh. Okay. So you said you live in China, so I have a two-part question. Okay. Um, you said that you like developing countries um, or traveling around developing countries, and I was wondering if there was a particular reason. And then another one related is um, um, I was curious about, just because I just finished studying about the BRICS and what you think China and Brazil's relationship is and what, what were the people on the ground, like what are their views of Chinese people? Okay. So I'm, I love BRIC countries because they're fast changing, they're developing, people's lives are adjusting, there's development all around you. It's a great backdrop to do a motorcycle trip around. And, uh, and, you know, I've just, and they're big countries, they're big, interesting, diverse countries. And to do China, I did China first, Tough Rides China first, because I lived there and I speak some Chinese and I've lived there since 2001. So it was kind of like doing a motorcycle trip in my own backyard. So it was kind of low-hanging fruit, although it was really hard, uh, harder than I thought it was going to be. But then India just seemed like the natural choice to do afterwards because it was, again, another brick country and fast-changing, fast-developing, which was, which was fun. And lots of people, I think lots of people, lots of diverse people really give flavor to the story. Um, and Brazil and China's relationship, yeah, I mean, Chinese people buy pretty much everything from Brazil, soybeans, iron ore, timber, you know, everything you can imagine. So uh, they have a very strong relationship and there doesn't seem to be really any animosity. It's funny, I always travel around the world and tell people I live in China and I've lived there since 2001 and they always look at me like I'm strange. But it's, it's lovely. I live in Shanghai and I love it. Uh, and it's a great platform for me to travel around the world and continue to make my shows. Um, but I think the relationship between Brazil and China is pretty good. Brazil's really suffering right now uh, and they're hosting the Olympics at the same time, so we'll see how it goes. But I think they're getting along quite well. Better than China and India, for example, which have a lot of animosity. Uh, yes? Um, so oh, just wait for the mic. Um, okay. I was just wondering, it's more about like your whole, the fact that you do spend your life doing TV shows, traveling around the world. You explained a bit in the beginning how you got into it from photography, but I just 
I guess for me, like being a student and everything, I don't really understand how someone goes from studying, what, what do you study? Was it like IR or something? International like politics, yeah. International politics. Yeah. From studying international politics, some t like from there to having a TV show where you uh, travel around the world. How do you make that step? Okay, how did I make that step? Yeah. So it's funny. Uh, when I was growing up in Toronto, Canada, like every young Canadian, I love sports. Right? I grew up, I watched hockey, but I couldn't skate. Weak ankles. It's a big problem. I loved basketball, and it was just as I was kind of growing up that we got a basketball team in Toronto. And then I, I, from the age of like eight, I played basketball to the age of 22. I played Division I basketball in Canada for the University of Toronto. And I took political science as well, which was lovely. But I knew I didn't probably want to do anything in political science. And a lot of my friends were going to be like lawyers and bankers. And when I... <clears throat> when I, I didn't have any interests either, really. That's the thing that basketball, like playing sports at a semi-high level does to you. Like you practice four hours a day. You eat, you sleep, you barely go to class if you can keep awake. Um, and then you, sorry, it's true sometimes. And then, and then, you know, and you don't have a life. And then when I was 22, when I graduated university, I didn't get to go and be a professional. I wasn't good enough. And then it's like, what do you do with all your free time? You know, no one's, no one's telling you you have to practice four hours a day. No one's telling you you have to travel next weekend to play another team. So I didn't know what to do. And then I, I, I had taken a few classes on, like, Chinese history and politics. And I said, I'm just going to go to China, because that seems totally different than Canada. And uh, now there's a lot of Chinese people living in Canada, and it's kind of the same. But, um, <laughs> but at that time, it was much less. So I went to China, and I loved it. You know, throughout our lives, we have different versions of ourselves. You know, we have our, our, this, the person who's a student, you know, the student version of ourselves. And then we have this part of ourselves that's a son or daughter. And then eventually a mother or father. And as I grew up a little bit, I started to realize that this version of myself that was traveling was the, was the Ryan I liked the best. He was curious. He was humble. He wanted to learn. He wanted to talk to people. He wanted to understand. And, um, and that made me want to live in China. And that made me want to tell stories. And I didn't know how to tell stories, because I was just backpacking around. And I was seeing all this stuff in China, and I was going to all these remote places, and this was in 2001. And I was like, how come people aren't talking about this? This is amazing. Like, this country is just overflowing with stories and personality. And it was my political science education, really, that helped me kind of understand a little bit about you know, communism and how people were developing and how China was moving away from communism into a more economic, you know, capitalist environment and how that was upsetting so much of the Chinese countryside. And, and then I thought, wow, I, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to live in China and tell stories about China. So then I started working for local magazines in China, English, English um, language magazines. There were a few. There's a newspaper and stuff like that. I started working for them. And then... I started, I got lucky, I started working with the New York Times and Time and Newsweek and Fortune. And then in 2008, when I was kind of getting good at it and, and feeling like I, I had some control over my career, the financial crisis happened and all my clients went bankrupt. And I thought to myself, how can I keep traveling and keep telling stories? And, and I thought, maybe I can make a television show. So I thought that if I made a television show about China, because China was what I knew best, I just spent 10 years kind of documenting and photographing China, that maybe I can get some traction faster than I, if I visited a country I didn't know anything about. So I brought my brother along with me because he knew nothing about China. 
And I was kind of a semi-expert, and I spoke some Chinese, and I had the background with the New York Times. And we thought, what's the best way to show off China in the most objective way possible? Because I kind of felt, I still do feel like a lot of the reporting on China is very subjective and very leaning in different directions that don't necessarily represent the country as a whole. The way I see it, that's a different topic and a different conversation and a different lecture. But. But I thought, if we just ride motorcycles, then people can see all the diversity in China for what it really is, and and then they can see it with their own eyes. And we did that, and we called it the Middle Kingdom Ride because we thought we would only do one.、Um, and then we got really lucky because Travel Channel bought it, and we made it. We made a television show somehow. You know, we didn't really know. We hired a few people that knew, and they helped us mold it and shape it, and and finally we had you know something. That was interesting to people, and one of the biggest feedbacks I get about Tough Rides China is I had no idea China looked like that. You know, you can go out to Northwest China and people look Afghan with green eyes, and they look you know Middle Eastern or Indian, not not kind of Han Chinese or or what we would all stereotype as being Chinese, and then you go down to Tibet and everyone's totally different again, similar to Brazil. All these countries have. Unbelievable amounts of diversity, and we wanted to show that about China, and I think we did. And yeah, it's a brother, a brother motorcycle ride, which actually at the time no one wanted to see because of Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, who did their long way round and long way down, and basically destroyed the industry for anyone who ever wanted to ride a motorcycle ever, and make television.、Uh, but again, we were, you know, we had one partner that was interested, and that gave us a chance to create and tell stories, and that's how I did it. You know, it just. We did it on our own. We didn't get commissioned to do it, and then we got lucky.、Um, and now, you know, we're in season three. We're planning for season four, and I do other shows with Discovery. And now it's it's kind of blossomed into a bit of a career. But we just had to go for it. Similar, the similar mindset to when I first moved to China in 2001. I didn't know any Chinese. I didn't have any friends. I think I had two thousand dollars in my bank account, and you know, I just went moved to Shanghai and was like, I'll just figure it out. So, but we made television. And now we do it regularly, so it was fun, and it's been a great journey because I still get to tell stories and see the world. Any other questions? Yes. So,、um, in、uh, the remote area of China, they're building、uh, railways for thousands of miles. Do you see any、uh, economic reason of some other reasons to build the?、Uh, The superhighway or railways in the Amazon area. Yeah, so China obviously has world-class infrastructure. No, no doubt about it. You know, I when I when I travel from Shanghai to Beijing, I don't even fly anymore. I take a four and a half hour train. It goes like 500 kilometers an hour. It's amazing.、Uh, so China's got a great train network. They have trains all around the country.、Um, yeah, Brazil could really benefit from a great a great train network. And I, I'm sure the Chinese are probably bidding to build it,、um, uh, because you know going through the Amazon by road is just not possible.、Um, whether they can find a way to build a railway through the Amazon, both to get minerals out and people in, or vice versa,、uh, you know most most railways in this world start as a mineral exporting concept and then eventually bring in tourists and other things like that. But I'm sure Brazil would be great. For that, if they could ever figure out how to not have massive、uh, corruption scandals with their oil companies and have all their politicians go to jail, 
which is the big story at the moment. I'm sorry if that sounded a little biased, but, but this, is, you know, this is the problem. As you travel around Brazil, you start to realize how amazing Brazilian people are and how resourceful they are and how ambitious they are. I don't know if there's any Brazilians in the room, but, but you know, people in your country are amazing. And the one thing that everyone said was, man, the government's really holding us back, which is hard. But that's like every time we stopped. We stopped for coconut water. It's 36 degrees Celsius. The guy starts complaining about the government and corruption. Uh, you know, we're in the deep Amazon having caipirinhas for Bata's birthday, and we're surrounded by all his grandchildren. He goes, ah, the government, you know, it's not great. So this is a, you know, this is a problem. And hopefully they can resolve it and continue to develop because the country's amazing. And uh, I hope I can go back. I'm definitely going back. Uh, I make a show called Extreme Treks with Discovery Channel. I'm going to go back and do a jungle trek sometime soon, which will be, and I hope I can get that guy, Leo, that I was with also. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I have a two-part question, if I may. You often mentioned uh, the term soul-destroying. So I have a question to ask about the emotional journey that you went through. The fact that it was so physically strenuous and intense, did that make the emotional side easier because your body was just too exhausted to think about the fact that you're away from home and family and friends and in a very different terrain or not? And my second question is, you've interacted with people across the world on the widest spectrum, nation state, culture, ethnicity, economic backgrounds. What have you learned about human beings and human nature? Okay, let me do the first, second question first. That's really intense, actually. You have to. I thought I was just going to talk about motorcycles and people would clap and then I would leave. Um, look, people are all the same everywhere. I think this is the underlying factor. People want to work. People want to feed their families. People want to protect their families. People want to live in an environment where they can see their kids grow up and do better than they do. Everywhere. You know, and where in the world can people live where they can have access to that safety and that development opportunity? And you know, whether you're in the Amazon, whether you're in Sao Paulo, uh, whether you're in a favela in Rio de Janeiro, you know, everyone is, is where, can I, you know, where can I spend my days giving my time to earn an income that allows me to feed my family and give my children a better opportunity? And that is what I have learned everywhere, whether you're in Delhi, Manali, Amritsar, Sao Paulo, Manaus, or even in parts of China, you know. That's just the underlying factor that everyone cares about first. And then the second thing is, oh, you have an iPhone. So, you know, in China, everyone has phones. Uh, mobile phone connections are amazing. Um, less so in Brazil, but India as well. So, you know, those are the basic elements that everyone's really focused on. And what was the first question? I got totally confused. Oh, yeah. It's really hard. So it's called tough rides, right? So it can't really be that easy. So as I travel around these countries, I look for one road that's really going to push me. And I think this is some kind of torture element that I have for myself, because I played basketball for many years. And basketball's a tough sport. You have a coach that drives you every day, every day, every day. And then when that stops, it's over. So it's like, where do you get that adrenaline, which is a drug, where do you get that adrenaline? Where do you get that emotion of playing basketball, of competing? Who's your enemy? Who are you going to beat? You know, what's it going to be? And I think that I use my television shows in some kind of perverse way of maintaining that adrenaline. And I always go out, and I, I have a show called Extreme Treks where I climb mountains, and it's 5,000 meters above sea level, and it's a snowstorm, and you're almost at altitude sickness and hypothermia and all that, but you carry on, and it's awesome. 
and you live, right? And that's the whole thing. And then the BR319 in India, it's the Sach Pass or the Rotong Pass just north of Manali. In, in, you know, in China, it's Tibet uh, on the G219 highway. So, you know, I look, out, I look for all these challenges. And, um, and yeah, I think it's just I, I miss the competitive basketball days in so many ways. Uh, my coach would love to hear me say that. Uh, but, you know, I'm, I'm constantly looking for these challenges because I think it's fun to hit the wall. Like, it's, it's great. So many people, I feel, go through life, they don't know where the wall is. And when you hit that wall, you fall, you get some man tears out, the camera's on you in this case. There's a lot of man tears in my show. Um, and, then, and then you pick yourself back up and you finish what you came there to do. And then the next time you hit the wall, the wall's a little further away. And a little further away, and every time you kind of get a little stronger. And I think that's what I'm looking for all the time, because I don't get that in my daily life. And I think a lot of us might not. And I don't want you to, people to think like I'm chasing some kind of death wish. I'm not. I don't think in any of my shows I've, I've been in like mortal danger. It's just an exercise in discomfort. How uncomfortable can you be on a motorcycle for 60 days? Uh, you know, and where can you go and what can you see and who can you meet? And that's really where we're trying to go with tough rides and extreme treks where we can do things and really connect with people or, or, or challenge ourselves with Mother Nature in some way to have a, a meaningful you know, emotional and physical experience, which I kind of crave. I mean, that's why people climb mountains. You know, earlier this year, I, you know, I climbed Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. I walked across a desert in western China. You know, I just like these kinds of things, and it's lonely and it's hard, and your feet hurt afterwards, and you get sunburned and stuff. But, but yeah, I kind of feel like I'm really like living, and I'm out there and have a chance to meet cool people. And then if I can bring a television audience with me who might not be able to go there, and see that, maybe I can be a compelling lens for them to see the world through. And, you know, maybe they like me and they would just want to follow my journey, or maybe they just like the place and they just have to put up with me for 45 minutes. Whatever the story is, I'm probably going to keep going out and keep making stuff. Uh, and hopefully, you know, people just continue to come out on Wednesday nights and hang out with me for a bit. Is it Thursday or Wednesday? Thursday. Sorry, I'm still a bit jet-lagged. Um, any other questions? Yes, sir. I just wanted how you and your team prepare these journeys. Like you said, it takes six months just to check everything out. And what do you take in particular care of? What is important on these journeys? And then uh, what could you recommend for other people who just want to take a ride on a road <laughs> for a couple want... of months? So the preparation is really intense. Like we are making a television show. I am traveling with a production team. Safety is the utmost important. Safety with discomfort. That's what we're always looking for. And... Uh, you know, we need, to we need to plan out the road. Which roads are we going to take? You know, where are those hotels or safe places every night going to be that we can get food and water and gas uh, and, you know, talk to our families and things like that? That's really important. So the route is crucial. And I always hire someone in a local, in that, who's local to that country to help with the routing and the planning. And then we look for really interesting people to meet along the way who can help us access really remote places or, or really remote things. And, and some of those people are on camera. Some of them are off camera but they're always wonderful. Um, and, then, and then lastly is the bike. You know? The bike is important. You want a good bike. Uh, I work with BMW. They make great bikes. But if I didn't work with BMW, I'd still make the show. And I'd just grab a local bike and figure out how to fix it. But you, just, you, know, you can't let anyone stop you from exploring. That's kind of my attitude. And if the bike breaks down, you somehow fix it and you keep moving. <laughs> you just keep moving. You get addicted to moving. Um, 
But things to bring, you know, if you want to go to Brazil, I'd bring a SAT phone. Mobile connections are really bleak. Uh, they're expensive, but really worthwhile, especially if you're in the middle of, of, the, of nowhere. Um, if you're in China, you just need a mobile phone because they have mobile phone access around the whole country, which is incredible. And just bring, you know, bring an appetite to explore and patience. You're never going to get anywhere fast in a developing country. You know, one day in India, which is hilarious, we were in India, we were in Mumbai. We came into Mumbai at 5 p.m. And I could see my hotel. It was three or four kilometers away. It took five hours. Unbelievable. But we filmed it, and it was part of the show, and we had some fun. And I was riding a Royal Enfield motorcycle. This was Tough Rides India. And all these other Indian guys that were also on the same bike as me, they all came up, and we were all sitting in the traffic, and we just started chatting. And we made like 10 friends in five hours. And, you know, you just take what, what you're given. And, you know, you just go with an open mind and a lot of patience and try to be safe every day. And I think that's the, that's the key. But definitely do a lot of research and planning. But everywhere is great to go, you know, pretty much except for war zones and stuff, which are really not good. Um, but, you know, Brazil, India, China, these kinds of places, maybe Russia, maybe, who knows. Any other questions? Uh, yes. Oh, we've got a microphone for you. You said when you were in China, you learned Chinese and you speak Chinese now. In Brazil, was there need to speak Portuguese? Did you learn Portuguese? And does it change your personality if you jump, you know, from, from country to country and from language to language? So uh, I speak some Chinese. My wife is Chinese. I've lived in China for 15 years. It's, it, you know, you end up getting some. Uh, I'm not very prolific or proficient. I'm like an intermediate language speaker. Uh, when I did Brazil, I didn't speak any Portuguese. I picked up a few phrases along the way, but I'm still pretty hopeless. One of my crew spoke Portuguese which is great. Also, if you're doing a motorcycle trip, don't go alone. You know, bad things can happen if you break down and you're alone. You know, maybe you go with another rider uh, or someone, because uh, traveling alone, I think, can be quite challenging. But no, as I travel from country to country, it's kind of the same me. If I'm in Brazil, I don't become all hot-blooded and macho. Although there was a lot of that, you know, the men are quite, the men are men, right? And, you know, you, you go to Copacabana Beach and everyone's in a Speedo and barrel-chested, and that's, you know, that's what it is. But I'm still the same guy, just kind of traveling around, having fun, um, you know, just exploring and making friends. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, first of all, I want to congratulate you, because I am Brazilian, and I know that what you did in 60 days, uh, most of Brazilians won't do in, uh, in the whole life. So, first of all, congratulations for that. Thank you. And... Um, what I want is a really cliche question, but if you had to choose one thing that you got from your trip, like that Brazil has that no 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 else in the world has, like what would you choose? One thing. I loved the Amazon. You know, it was a beautiful love-hate relationship. It was like a 50-year marriage. <laughs> uh, I felt like I was in the Amazon for 50 years, and and I loved it and I hated it. You know. Like, I, there were, we were seven days, we were th about 25 days in the Amazon. We were, we were about, you know, 15 days south of the Amazon. We went through, like, Teresina, we went through Para province, we went to Santarim. When we got to Santarim, we took the ferry up to Manaus, that was a couple days, I got to drive the ferry. And then, uh, when we got to Manaus, that's when we took the BR-319, and that's when we really got pushed to our absolute limits. And the Amazon is the Amazon, I mean, it's amazing. It's like the Sahara Desert. There's only one Amazon. 
And, you know, to ride a motorcycle through that, to travel across it by land, is a great, you know, mini-achievement for people who care. And not a lot of people care, but I'm quite pumped by it. And, and that was what kind of kept me going the whole way. And, and each day I was kind of just broken at the end of it, again, you know, reaching that limit. Um, but then, you know, you, you try to clean yourself up, and then you have a little food and a drink. <laughs> you go to bed in a hammock, you wake up, and you're ready to tackle it again. And the mornings I was ready, you know, I was up for it. Um, and then by the evening I was broken again, and then, you, you know, the cycle continues. But I, I really love the Amazon. There's nothing like the Amazon anywhere <laughs> in the world, maybe. I don't know, like sub-Saharan Africa or along the equator. I've been to Indonesia. Um, I've been to, you know, Vietnam. I've been to, you know, other kind of regions along the equator. But there's something just powerful about the Amazon because it is huge. And when you're in the middle of it, you have this worry, you know, this kind of hopeless feeling, like, are you going to get out? And I said it in the video, like, when you kind of get halfway and you have a bad day, it's like, do you keep going? Do you turn around? You know, these are the kinds of things that just work in your brain. But the Amazon's unbelievable. Yeah, there's only one Copacabana Beach. Yeah, there's only one Sao Paulo. Florinopolis was fun. But the Amazon is something that, you know, I really hold on to. Anyone else? Uh, yes. As my Canadian. So what, if, what has my travels around the world kind of taught me about me being Canadian? Um, so I don't really know. You know, I'm a Canadian guy. I'm pretty, pretty relaxed, um, pretty tolerant, um, you know, anti-guns. Um, you know, uh, growing up in Canada is amazing. You know, it's pretty safe. You know, people treat each other nicely. The government takes care of you. It's a huge country. There's not a lot of people. There's no traffic. I just did a 70-day motorcycle journey across Canada. I just finished three or four days ago. Uh, and, um, and then came here, and it was with Tourism Canada. And I just love Canada. And this trip just helped me kind of rebuild that appreciation for my home. Um, but I also like living abroad and traveling abroad. And I actually like bringing that Canadianness. Canadianness, if that's a word, with me when I travel. And I always tell people I'm from Canada, and they're like, wow, it's good you're not from the U.S. And I say, thank you. Um, but, you know, we have that reputation as being kind of a home for everyone and, and, and pretty, you know, nice. And I think that's really nice to be able to travel around and have people recognize that. And it's, uh, it's definitely a warm feeling. Um, but I don't think I'm your typical Canadian. You know, obviously there's lots of Canadians traveling and doing things around the world, but I seem to be really addicted to it in an unhealthy way, maybe. Uh, but it's fun, you know, you get to see a lot and feel a lot, which, uh, which I really like. Uh, yes, ma'am, in the back. I did not see any cats in the Amazon, no big cats. Not one. Not one. Um, so I had a guide named Leo just north of Manaus, and he took us into the Amazon overnight. And he said, a big cat will never come near you if you're with a group of five, six, seven people and making noise. Um, you know, they just stay away. If he says, if you're by yourself, <laughs> then maybe that big cat will think you're a little vulnerable um, and might, you know, approach. But nothing. I mean, you, you have to hide out in a bush with a telescope. Uh, all night long if you want to see like a jaguar or a puma or something like that. You know, you can walk in and you're not going to see anything. And, and, and it's early morning and super late at night. You know, they're not out during the daytime when you want to see things. They're hidden and for good reason. So 
So we didn't see any big cats, um, sadly, but maybe next time, hopefully. Any other questions? Who have I not uh, called? Yes, sir. How about you? Did you feel like you were in real danger any time in your journey? Did I feel like I was in real danger? Um, no. No, I mean, obviously the worst part was, oh, you know, there were the, the most dangerous thing in Brazil is the truck drivers. So, you know, going into the Amazon, you're in traffic, there's trucks, they try to run you over, they don't give you enough space. You know, coming out of the Amazon, um, down from Iguazu, it was raining every day, it was like five degrees Celsius, the trucks were trying to run you over. It's, so dealing with, like, civilization is the dangerous part. Really, I mean, going into Sao Paulo at night, a little uncomfortable in some places. Uh, you know, dealing with truck traffic, specifically in India. Indian truck drivers are insane. Uh, we had a lot of close calls there. But being out on like the BR-319, again, it's like, you know, you've got a truck full of food and water. Yeah, you could break down. Yeah, I could get stuck in the mud, but you're still alive. I mean, it's not like dangerous in a way where you're going to like die. It's just going to be kind of difficult for a bit. Um, you know, we were never more than, once you're right in the middle, you're still three and a half to four days away from a town. And if the car got stuck, the bike could probably still go. And if the bike broke down, the car could probably still go. And, and we had enough food to last. So, you know, you take precautions. I had a satellite phone. I had guys I could call, you know, who had big SUVs that might be able to come out and help us if something really went wrong. So that's part of our preparation and safety is knowing people who can kind of help you get through uh, in some parts. So again, it's, it's not real danger. It's more of just an exercise in discomfort, um, which you have to be kind of looking forward to because that's where you get pushed. Yeah. Well, there's no, there's no one. So who's... <laughs> like, there needs to be other people around. to be. You have a better chance of getting kidnapped in Sao Paulo at a stoplight than you do of having someone just come out of the bush in the Amazon. Like, there's no one there, trust me. Like, there's no one there. Um, you know, there's nothing... You know, you could get bitten by a snake or wildlife, maybe. Like, the snakes were the scariest thing. And then sometimes when you would stop, you have to, you have to tuck your uh, pants in your motorcycle boots because then you can see the ants coming a little bit because you have motorcycle boots and then you can see them coming and then you have to slap them away because if your pants are over the boots then they can come up when you can't see them and then they bite the hole insides of your leg and then when they get into this area it's very uncomfortable and then but that's just you know the snakes they're poisonous the ants are annoying um, but it's just discomfort is it time? I think <clears throat> I was going to say I think we need to um, bring this to a close okay but thank you for uh, an absolutely fascinating and colourful talk. I th I'm sure we could have had many more questions and um, we could probably run on for another hour, although we're not entitled to do that. I'm entitled to do so that. perhaps everybody, if you could join with me in thanking Ryan for his, his talk tonight. Thank you, all. Too.